0: Africa, welcome to Daybreak Africa from The Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Tuesday, March 22nd. Here are some stories we are covering this morning. Mali's former Prime Minister, Somayelu Bobe Megam, arrested over corruption allegations last year, died of an undisclosed illness in hospital Monday, according to one of his lawyers.
1: Groundwater is a really um, fascinating and, frankly, much under-discussed element of our water cycle.
0: Today marks the 29th annual World Water Dam. This year's focus is groundwater, which provides fresh water to much of the world.
2: Vendors have to go and buy a few things, come and sell, go back and buy, come and sell many
0: Economists in Uganda say COVID-19 has greatly affected the resilience of cooperatives whose members who were forced to withdraw savings and lost their market investments. Tuesday, March 22nd, marks the 29th annual World Water Day. This year's focus is groundwater, which provides fresh water to much of the world. Michelle Quinn reports.
3: Under the soil, moving slowly through rock layers and inside aquifers, groundwater quietly coexists with us. It is the primary drinking water source for half of the world and a source of water for irrigating crops. And it's in trouble. The theme of this year's World Water Day, a U.N. observance day, is groundwater, its importance and the threats it faces. Elizabeth Doherty is a water expert and runs an organization called Holy H2O, a nonprofit. She spoke to VOA over Zoom. Groundwater is a
1: really um, fascinating and, frankly, uh, much under-discussed um, element of our um, Water cycle.
3: As rain or snow seeps through the ground, it becomes groundwater, often clean and stored in the earth. Groundwater can be a backup source of water during times of drought when lakes and rivers dry up. Jose Medellin Azuara is a water expert at the University of California, Merced. He spoke to VOA
2: over Zoom. So, groundwater is kind of the buffer uh, for many uh, irrigation. uh, places in the in the in the world to um, uh, the, uh, substitute for this lost uh, surface water during droughts.
3: Environmental advocates are concerned that the world's biggest groundwater aquifers are being depleted faster than they are being replenished, and that can lead to other issues. Again, Elizabeth Dougherty.
1: So that the ground starts to uh, deplete or or sink, and you can't refill that. Like you can't repump that full of water. Once there's subsidence, you've lost that capacity for water storage.
3: Groundwater is also threatened by pollution and mismanagement. Again, Professor Medine Azawara.
2: And in many cases, the contamination that we see in um, in, in groundwater is the product of uh, things that were um, that happened decades back.
3: Environmental advocates say people should ask where their water comes from and push their elected officials to include water management in setting policies for future growth. Kimberly Shonick is the Verde River Project Manager for the Nature Conservancy in Arizona. She spoke to VOA over Zoom.
2: We need to make sure we're looking at the whole system and not just one piece of it.
3: With the world's population expected to keep growing, experts say that better understanding and managing of the planet's groundwater may be key to our future survival. Michelle Quinn, VOA News.
0: There's enough groundwater on the African continent to provide everyone with enough drinking water to face at least five years of drought, and in some cases, up to 50 years. This is according to a new analysis done by the British Geological Survey and WaterAid presented at the World Water Forum in Dakar as Rude elmdop reports for VOA.
2: The British Geological Survey and WaterAid, after a 10-year survey, found that throughout Africa there are enough subsurface water reserves to serve the entire population. Even in parched locations, according to BGF chief researcher Alan MacDonald, there can be adequate groundwater, he explains through Zoom. When you realise that the groundwater resources are maybe 20 times the amount of water we have in the
1: rivers and lakes of Africa, then it is really quite an amazing fact. But because it's hidden, it's so often out of sight and out of mind. This applies to
2: Turkana. Turkana. Kenya, one of Africa's driest regions, where camel caravans trek between the scarce water sources. It is one of the worst affected places on the continent, according to the famine early warning system. Turkana's water minister, Vincent Paler confirms the situation is dire.
4: The water sources are drying up because the water table has gone down. The body condition of the livestock is poor, one look at also the vegetation cover. The vegetation cover is not pleasant because uh, it's drying up.
2: But even in Turkana, there appears to be water just beneath the feet of the camel herders. According to a 2013 report, Turkana has enough groundwater to service Kenya for 70 years. However, a government survey has shown the water is too salty. Virginia Newton-Lewis, a senior policy analyst at WaterAid, explains via Zoom that investments are needed to get usable water.
0: We need mapping, we need monitoring, and this takes investment. It also takes investment in equipment, it takes investment in human resources to do that. And then we need investment in the ways in which we can get the water that we find
3: to the people
2: who need it the most. BGS researcher Ellen MacDonald adds that the report is timely, since groundwater is crucial amid droughts caused by climate change. As droughts are becoming more
1: common, then people are looking for a much more reliable source of water, which is why I think there is this renewed or increased interest in groundwater resources because they're much
2: more reliable than rainwater or river water or even reservoirs. Turkana's minister, Vincent Paler is pleased with the renewed focus on groundwater exploration, as he is concerned that continuing water shortages may exacerbate the situation.
4: If the water stress continues, this therefore means that there will be scrambled for water and this may force these pastoralists to move to neighbouring countries and then at times contributing to conflict.
2: There is, however, respite for Turkana in Africa, since another recent survey by BGS suggests that 80% of the subterranean water is likely to be acceptable for drinking. Ruth Almendoy for VOA News, Kenya.
0: Mali's former Prime Minister Somiyalu Babayu Maiga arrested over corruption allegations last year, died of undisclosed illness in hospital Monday, According to one of his lawyers, the 68-year-old Maiga was detained in August over his suspected role in the purchase of a presidential plane during the rule of ex-president Ibrahim Babacar Keita, ousted in a military coup a year earlier. He was charged with multiple counts of graft and was waiting trial. Lawyers maintained their client was innocent. One of them told Reuters news agency he died at a clinic in the capital, Bamako, on Monday morning, where he had been hospitalized on parole since December. His family and doctors had unsuccessfully pushed for Maiga to be allowed to travel abroad for treatment as his health deteriorated in Bamako's main prison. Economists in Uganda say COVID-19 has greatly affected the resilience of cooperatives whose members who were forced to withdraw savings and lost their market investments. They say the government must take a deliberate effort to help cooperatives, composed mainly of farmers, to cope with the effects of the pandemic. Reporter Mugume davis Ruakarinji has more from Kampala.
4: Santa Juslakel who heads at Yak Sugar Plantation, Outgrowers Cooperative Society, says many sugar farmers were devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic. She says the coronavirus restricted her members, mainly women, from moving from one place to another to purchase merchandise. Vendors have to go and buy a few
2: things, come and sell, go back and buy, come and sell. Many fell out. But together again, because in our cooperative society, we have these savings, and this savings has been a good help, a big help where you save together and then you borrow. That is what has been helping.
4: La Caris cooperative is made up of more than 3,000 members with diverse backgrounds, including those abducted in wars, widows, orphans, and former commercial sex workers. Samuel Sentumbe heads the National Alliance for agriculture cooperatives in Uganda. He says many farmers counted losses because they could not access both local and international markets. What actually worsened it is that uh, some of these cooperatives or some of these farmers had actually done the production using borrowed funds. So you have a situation where you cannot market your produce but then also the financier, the banks are also on your neck, they want to recover their money. Jane Amoge Okelo is the Head of Operations at Uhuru Institute, an economic think tank in Uganda.
5: A lot of the membership withdrew their money, especially because they didn't have sufficient savings. So they went to their savings and credit cooperatives and withdrew. Now that affects the liquidity of these cooperatives.
4: Amoge says the government must offer incentives and provide financial little asset to members of the cooperative so they can learn how to associate their businesses. A 2021 World Bank report says COVID-19 caused a sharp contraction of the economy to slowest pace in three decades. The report also noted that both farmers and those in former sectors were equally affected as household incomes fell when farms closed and jobs were lost, particularly in the urban informal sector. The report notes that the country's gross domestic product contracted by 1.1% in 2020. The study is titled Crisis to Green Resilient Growth Investing in Sustainable Land Management and Climate Smart Agriculture. It says that the crisis led to a significant shift of Ugandans to agriculture and has added the urgency to enhance the sustainable use of natural resources. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarengini Kampala, Uganda.
0: In Nigeria, former Vice President Atiku Abubakar plans to announce on Wednesday his presidential bid to compete in next year's general election. Abubakar will lead the main opposition, People's Democratic Party. Paul Ibe, spokesperson for the former Vice President, says Abubakar is currently holding wild consultations with stakeholders as part of his efforts to bolster support for his candidacy. The former vice president was defeated by then-incumbent, President Mohamed Bahari, in the last general election. Abubakar was former President Olusegun Obasanjo's vice president for two terms. Spokesman Paul Ibe tells VOA's Peter Klote that the former vice president will on Wednesday outline why he is the best candidate to address the socio-economic and security challenges facing Nigeria.
6: Yes, the consultations or the engagements with stakeholders of the PDP, uh, with leaders of the party, you know, with Nigerians, you know, of diverse background, you know, started months ago, and uh, is culminating uh, in uh, an official declaration on Wednesday. And uh, in, in, the, in the course of the consultations, you know, he seeks to give them a buy-in. And, uh, you know, have the ownership, you know, of the process, you know, of his presidential run. So a lot, you know, a lot, a lot has been accomplished, you know, in in that process. He's held meetings, you know, across the 36 states of Nigeria and the Federal Capital Territory. He's had meetings with youth leaders, uh, with leaders of different organs of the party, both the elders of the party both the lawmakers, you know, the lower chamber and the upper chamber. And even as we speak, uh, you know, he is in a meeting. What do you think the former vice president thinks he is uniquely qualified to become Nigeria's next president after multiple tries? And what, why do you think it will be different this time around if he contests? Yeah, Peter, listen, Nigeria faces an existential threat. Nigeria has never been this divided since the civil war, you know, of 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 1967. The economy of Nigeria is has collapsed, and every other thing around is collapsing. There's an energy crisis. There are divisions along religious, tribal lines. We are very divided. There is a state of pervasive insecurity. You can't achieve much under such a situation. So you need a leader like Atikwa Bubaka who understands Nigeria. And this is a man who has a knack for bringing people together. He's experienced as a vice president. You know, he was in charge of running the economy, which at that point in time between 1999 and 2007 had an average growth of 7%. He's had experience uh, establishing his businesses, creating jobs. For millions of Nigerians, he's not a bigot. He's not a tribalist. You know, he's acceptable to people from uh, from the nooks and crannies of Nigeria. That's the kind of leader we need at this point in time—a unifier who will bring us together and begin the hard work of fixing Nigeria. During his uh, official declaration, is he going to outline? What he plans to do for Nigeria, or what Nigerians should expect from him, especially with the ongoing socio-economic as well as uh, security challenges, he will give an insight, you know, into that. His plans, what he hopes to do, but the bigger, you know, uh, work, you know, for all of that has been assigned to a policy. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, there, there is a committee, a seven-man committee. You know, for the review of its policy document. Don't forget that ever since he has run for president, he has put in place a policy document that you will know, encapsulate uh, how he hopes to, you know, run the country, you know, politically, socially, economically. So, you know, that is in place, and that committee is at work. It is at work even as we talk. And after the work, the committee must have, you know, finished, you know, that work. He will now empanel, you know, uh, uh, an economic team that will now you know, fleshing out, you know, all of the, you know, all of the, you know, the things, you know, that the review committee will have come up with. So he's going to give an insight into how, you know, what his plans are, you know, for Nigeria, you know, instead of a contract, you know, with the people of Nigeria. Yes, he would do that.
0: Paul Ibe, spokesman for former vice president Atiku Abubakar, He spoke with my colleague Peter Klote. African immigrants who were studying or working in Ukraine before Russia's invasion have fled Poland and other neighboring countries seeking safer housing and a new start to life. VOA reporter Mary Mugawi spoke to two African medical students from Ukraine who are now staying with their family in the city of Sedens in Poland.
5: Immigrants who fled the war in Ukraine and end up in Poland include foreign nationals from African countries. Among them, Angela Alex, a Tanzanian who was a second-year medical student at Kiev Medical University. She met with a Nigerian citizen, a first-year student at Taras Shevashenko National University in Ukraine, on their way to Poland. Their journey was not easy. She recalls how her life was in Ukraine before the war. As she said, it felt like home. Like, Mm -hmm. there was not much difference other than the language and other barriers, but it was just normal. Angela said she never imagined that one day her life would change and she would find herself a Ukrainian refugee living in Poland. After Russia invaded Ukraine, she was worried and she realized she had to leave. Um, When I first heard the bombs, it was, I think, I think it was... um, 4am as everybody says it it was 4am and when you hear the bombs it it's it was hard to believe like oh this is actually happening because i thought probably it was fireworks or something like that or as people celebrating but so when we started seeing i mean as the days went by we started seeing smoke in different areas Mm -hmm. transportations were being closed and we're like okay this is serious Goodness if Abumoye from Nigeria also decided to leave Kiev as soon as she received reports of an invasion. There were well, times where we heard hear this loud sound and everything and the, like, the bed would shake a little, but we just felt, you no, know, it's far, it's far, but like this day I woke up and I could see smoke from afar. That was when I knew that, OK, this thing is actually coming. And unfortunately, the airports were closed, but at some point I just said I had to go. So I just packed, like, my basic bag, and I was like, I have to leave. So that's what I did. The lives of these two girls changed drastically after they found themselves in Poland in the city of Sheditz. They are now staying with a Polish couple. Goodness relates what she witnessed at the Ukraine-Poland border and how she met their hosts. I think when I got to the border, I, I don't know, I put a call to my embassy, but, but I wasn't able to. I get, you know, a definite arrangement from them. So there's this man, a volunteer, which us to a, a particular woman. So it's true that we we're able to connect to this um, good Samaritans. Angela and Goodness, they say they have started new life, but they don't see any immediate hope of returning to Ukraine, even though they're still studying online. They say their future plan is not to return to Africa until they complete their transfer and continue their studies at the college in other European countries. Mary Mgawe, VOA in Poland.
0: The command of all U.S. military forces in the Middle East, Frank McKenzie, says the Biden administration plans to approve. Egypt's years-long request to buy F-15 fighter jets, despite almost certain opposition among lawmakers due to Cairo's human rights abuses. Reporter Angie Omar discussed with Saeed Sadiq, professor of political sociology at the American University in Cairo. How could he explain such a step when the Biden administration pledged to link its foreign policy to democracy and human rights?
1: American rules of engagement with its allies in the Middle East are quickly changing due to the Ukraine uh, conflict. The Biden administration has been facing many disgusting issues with its allies in the Middle East due to shoulder toward Gulf states leaders and Egypt for over a year since Biden uh, took the White House. And this is happening also in the middle of news that America is going to give some compromises to expansionist. Iran in the Middle East over its nuclear program. And of course, this is causing a lot of tension in, uh, uh, in the area and worrying about American engagement. Egypt is strategically important for the U.S. in the East Mediterranean, the Red Sea, Soros Canal, Libya, Gazda file, counterterrorism. So it was important that the Biden administration sends a reassuring message and return to real in dealing with its close allies in the Middle East.
3: General McKenzie's remarks suggests the Biden administration is willing to sidestep promises of a human rights-based approach to foreign policy and risk a potential showdown with lawmakers in order to improve Washington ties with Cairo. What is your take on that?
1: As you know, the the Muslim Brotherhood is classified in Egypt as a terror organization, like maybe nine or ten countries are doing the same uh, toward the, this organization. Previous attempts in several European countries and also the U.S. to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terror organization has failed to, due to the intelligence services. Links that this organization is having with them in many Western countries in monitoring uh, Muslim communities in Europe and the U.S. Today, the organization has lost much of its influence and power. So calls to to defend them under the slogan of human rights uh, uh, did not work. Again, real politic, uh, has begun to resurface again in American foreign policy throughout the Middle East, and Egypt in particular. Uh, many American uh, lawmakers, as we mentioned before, like Ted Cruz, were aware about this standing uh, uh, behind this cloud of uh, human rights violation in Egypt, this smoke screen that is always being uh, raised. In, in addition, Washington is now giving a lot of priority to its relations to its traditional allies rather than alienating them. They are taking into consideration the strengths of the uh, American arms lobby in the Congress that would withstand and oppose any members who would not approve this uh, deal. That was Saeed
0: Sadiq, Professor of Political Sociology at the American University in Cairo, speaking with reporter Angie Omar. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at vonews.com and connect with us on all social media platforms. I'm Douglas Mpuga in Washington, wishing you a very wonderful day.